The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, Fight Fans. It is Thursday, March 7th, and this is the Fisgianados Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinados pod. An interesting upcoming two-week section here. And a, and, a, and a look back at maybe a not-so-interesting past two weeks. Um, and then we're going to do a deep dive just sort of on how we got here to the place that we're at in the boxing universe. I think it's... I think it's something just based on the social media chatter in general that I've seen is worth doing. I think it's also just something, it, it's tying a lot of what I've talked about on this pod sort of all together in one deep dive, uh, where maybe I don't go quite as deep as I should, but I think it's worth looking at it from this perspective. I'll also go through a couple sort of quick news and notes and, and have one or two interesting announcements Um, but let's, and, and then I, I get back to people. I've been, I've been very busy in the last two weeks on a personal level. Um, I will get back to you on email, although it's probably, this is probably the longest it's been in terms of me getting back people. And, um, and then Twitter is obviously, uh, a, a deep dark hole where, where I try to look for positivity, but you know. It is what it is. <clears throat> Anyways, I think I think in the boxing universe, we are looking up. I think these first two months have been kind of rough. And I think we're headed towards a really good run in March, or at least for this first this two-week period. And then I think towards the end of April, we're going to have a really good run. And I think May is going to be also a really, really nice run. Um, that much has been made clear just I've been to a couple of events recently including the DAZN press thing on Monday earlier this week I'll talk about that a little bit more later you know what? let's just let's get into the review and I'll talk about about all this stuff a little bit later all right on Saturday February 23rd DAZN brought us a show from Tijuana where Umberto Soto beats Brandon Rios by unanimous decision over 12 rounds in what ultimately turned out to be a pretty fun old man fight um, it ended up being okay TV to watch on a day that brought us some really, really mediocre boxing. Um, and this was sort of fun. It was meaningless, but just sort of cool. Like neither guy was really at risk of getting hurt or anything like that. So like in the grand scheme of things, I don't, you know, doesn't mean that much. I do hope these guys retire. If they fight again in a well-matched fight, I'm going to watch, but 
you know, we should be looking at retirement. So Rios was about an 8-1 to favorite going in. So you could have made some decent coin on him. You probably could have gotten 4-5-1 or five to one on the comeback. Uh, with Soto, I don't want to endorse too much gambling. I don't really gamble, as I've said many times on the show. I just sort of bring up the odds as to what you're looking at as, you know, in terms of how well the matches are made. Um, I only, just on a television note, because of the day, I only watch the main event here. And I'll just say this, while I appreciated this one event from DAZN, this can't be week in, week out boxing on DAZN. Moving on. Also, on February 23rd, Saturday, Showtime gave us a very mediocre show, uh, which may have ended up actually being the best show of the night on this incredibly active but subpar day of boxing that I've already talked about, where Chris Eubank Jr. won by unanimous decision over James DeGale at super middleweight in in what turned out to be probably a a decent fight. Also on the card, Joe Joyce wins by KO6 over Bermain Stavern, and then they showed highlights of the Lee Selby unanimous decision win over Omar Douglas. The show got measured in two different segments, uh, each lasting about an hour. I'll give the benefit of the doubt here, and I'll say in the 5.44 p.m. Eastern portion, it averages 180,000 viewers. In the hour period before that, 4.44, it does 160,000 viewers. The segments were the 147th and 148th rated cable shows of the day. This ended up actually really being the opposite of what I thought it would be. I thought the main event would be close and not that interesting, it was actually somewhat interesting television. It wasn't that close at all, in my opinion. Eubank Jr. looks pretty good. I hope he actually does something with momentum from this win. His flaws, though, are still on display if you're watching carefully. And then I was hopeful that the heavyweight fight would be really good. It was actually pretty entertaining for a round or two before Joyce just sort of took over. And it was a good stoppage towards the end. I'm not going to bother covering what many people on multiple platforms have already covered, which is Joe Joyce's hand speed, which is Obviously not good, but I'm still interested in seeing what level Joe Joyce can get to in this journey. It's just sort of interesting for me to watch someone who does have some talent but is is way further along in the development uh, or in the age range, not in the development st- stage of their career, to just sort of see how that works out. Uh, the lowest profile show on Saturday the 23rd was the FS1 show that night. Anthony Durrell wins by technical decision over Avni. Yodirium, uh, in what ended up being a pretty decent TV fight, although the broadcast itself was kind of a shit show. Also on the card, Jamal James wins by KO6 over Yanir Gonzalez. Uh, that actually ended up being the peak viewership between 11.30 and 11.45 p.m. Eastern, which is really why I was calling it a shit show, because the fights were supposed to start at 10 p.m. That obviously did not happen. Uh, it ends up being the 126-rated cable show of the night. It averages... 291,000 viewers peaking at 366,000. It's obviously not a great number. It does not compare that well to the Planet Uzka Techie fight card, but I'm not going to completely crush this number. And even though I didn't really say what, give the context for the Showtime number, Showtime, you know, both of these cards, you can make, you, you, you need to look at in context. So Showtime televised is a card... Neither with, or, or PBC televised two cards. Showtime's card doesn't have named fighters. It's on in the middle of the day. Um, 
it's it's just sort of it's it's the opposite of what you want to do when you're looking to boost your viewership numbers. Like this is this is the type of card that you only show to hardcore fight fans, and that's obvious based on the numbers you watched. And even they may not be that excited about it, but they're probably thankful. Like this is probably better than uh, a below average Showtime Championship boxing card. It's it's decent, at least in the build up on paper. It ended up being not that great, but. You know, there's a good British environment. Like, there's reasons to watch this card and, and get some enjoyment out of it. If you care about your final, like, your average viewership numbers over the year or just viewership numbers in general, you don't televise this card. So, and, and, and I think it's the same kind of story here on FS1. So, FS1, uh, huge competition, just sort of a, a scatterbrained day. Like, there was UFC on ESPN2. There was Bellator on Paramount. There's three boxing cards TV. None of them really stand out on paper. FS1, and just just for context, like FS1's average viewership in 2018, over the course of the year, just average viewership total for the network, it's about 161,000 viewers. And so when you look at, like, you could also what they were televising that day, it's like all these racing, mostly NASCAR events. There's some NHRA early in the morning, too. None of that audience really crosses over into boxing that well, so it shouldn't be that shocking that you get a rating like this. Also, just not a great fight on paper. Like this fight ended up being probably the most, maybe the most fun. No, no, not the most fun. I think that's Soto, Bam Bam, but the closest. In actuality, it just wasn't close on paper. Like, no one ever heard of, of Yildirim, and, and no one really cares that much about Darrell unless he's the opponent. And just to continue on the theme of the day where there's lots of competition, but none of it, like, standing out, well, this UFC prelims card on ESPN2, it draws 271,000 viewers, but that's at 11 a.m., and it's on ESPN2 instead of ESPN. Bellator averages 349,000 viewers at 9 p.m. Really the standout event, Duke-Syracuse did 2.9 million viewers. It was the top-rated cable show. It's just a day filled. It's just a completely scatterbrained boxing or combat sports day. Nothing stood out. Nothing was that good. I I was disappointed at how much boxing I had to watch where really none of it was that fun. But look, that that's the world we're in. I mean... I'd say the only other note is it's tough when you send your announcing team over to foreign areas and and they don't control the broadcast feed. You did see some incongruities uh, because of that. I tend to cut networks a break on that stuff, and I actually thought both announcing teams did a pretty nice job considering the circumstances. Okay, on to the next weekend. On Saturday, March 2nd, Showtime puts on a card from New York where Brian Castaño has a split draw with Arislandi Lara and keeps his regular WBA junior middleweight title. Luis Ortiz wins by unanimous decision over Christian Hammer at heavyweight, and then Eduardo Ramirez beats Brian De Gracia by KO9. The show got split into uh, three different segments. The main event averages 487,000 viewers, peaking at 530,000. It was the 87th-rated cable show of the day. The Ortiz-Hammer fight averages 411,000 viewers. It was the 101st-rated cable show of the day. Again, I don't have a whole lot to say about this show. 
it wasn't that we were given necessarily really bad TV, but like everything about the show was just sort of unremarkable. I don't know if I needed the opening fight period, even though it ended in a knockout. It just wasn't that entertaining. Uh, I assume the Ortiz fight would have been over sooner. I don't know if I needed 10 rounds of that. Uh, and I, and I'm not really sure how much we learned, you know, Luis Ortiz is old. And so when he fights someone who doesn't go down right away, like this is kind of what you're, this is what it is. Like, this is what you're going to see. I don't know that I needed to see him fight Christian Hammer in order to tell me that. I probably already knew that. But I would have loved to see Luis Ortiz get this guy out earlier. Main event, you know, I like Arislan Dilar. He's become a much more TV-friendly fighter. He's been in a lot of decent fights uh, recently. I don't know if I need to see this again. Like, Brian Castaño, he's very one-note for me. Uh, he is going to be capable of making good TV fights. I just think eventually... He's going to fight someone who's really going to make him pay. That is not Arslandi Lara at this point in his career. You know, maybe, maybe three or four years ago, he would have made him pay in a major way. That's not who he is now. All right. Given all that unremarkable TV, let's just move on. Let's get to the deep dive and, and maybe let's cover a couple of notes first. So first of all, from a programming perspective. I have a few upcoming shows planned out in terms of what I'm going to look at. I'm definitely going to look at DAZN's upcoming stretch. I'm also going to write about it for Ring Magazine. It's super interesting for to me. I haven't really talked about Canelo Jacobs yet on this podcast. And there's some other fights and rumors circling out there and just sort of swirling in general. I went to the LA press conference, like I mentioned up top. It was a pretty big event at LA Live. And side note on Andrew Cancio, kind of like... I mean, Canelo is the star of the show, so he wasn't the star of the show. He received a crazy amount of media attention. That it was, it was like touching and charming, and and really fun to see. The dude just took to it well. Like he, you know, just super, super impressive. And the the amount of Hispanic TV outlets or Mexican TV outlets. Uh, astounding at, at who wanted to talk to him and why. I mean, just just a really cool story. A lot of fun to watch just from the sidelines. All right, so I'm also definitely going to do a show where I talk about the PBC. Uh, you know, following up on the the one of the topics I talked about at the beginning of the year, uh, beginning of the year episode I did, and I'm just going to follow up on like that sharing platform, like what they're kind of doing between Showtime and Fox and how that's working out. I'll probably write an article about that too. One thing I won't be doing though, I will not be comparing Fox and ESPN pay-per-views. Um, I will definitely be covering the Fox pay-per-view, but full, clo- full disclosure here, I am consulting on the marketing front for the ESPN top-ranked show. And while I'm bummed I won't be covering that, it's really nice to be back in the game on the marketing front working on that event um, but like I said, I'm definitely going to cover the Fox pay-per-view. And just the, the only thing I'll say about them both right now is that I'm expecting both pay-per-views to do better than people think. And that's not from social media chatter. That is from having pro- hopefully the correct estimation in terms of what the Fox and ESPN platforms will do for these fights. And then... Just seeing, like seeing already, I'm getting targeted on, on, you know, by Fox on the fight. I was targeted several weeks ago. And I think, 
That is smart of Fox, and, and I've enjoyed the spot so far. I'll talk about a little bit more of that towards the end of the show here, because I will be previewing that one. But I am doing both. I'm, I'm expecting both pay-per-views to do better than people think. Um, you know, also, like, semi-breaking news, like, <clears throat> sounds like Deontay Wilder is going to fight Dominic Brazil on May 18th. Like, there's going to be a couple more test cases when it comes to pay-per-view. I mean, this one, this fight, like, automatically becomes, you know, I've talked about this before in a couple different places, like, we're in that world where one of these pay-per-views has got to fail. This one becomes the most likely candidate to fail. Now, we don't have a lot of information yet, so I don't want to delve too far into it. But, you know, the obvious thing here, if the PBC is guaranteeing the money rather than Showtime, then I don't know how, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's Al Heyman's money. It's not money that comes out of your Showtime budget, so to speak. I mean, it's never good when a pay-per-view bombs. But... If what everyone is saying is true right now, then Deontay Wilder is getting paid a lot of money, and I just don't think this fight will generate a lot of money. I mean, maybe it hits 300,000 buys. Maybe, you know, Deontay Wilder is a bigger star than everybody thinks. Um, but I, I don't I don't think that. I, I don't think it'll do as well. You know, maybe it does do 325, and it matches what Wilder Fury did, and Deontay Wilder is just a, a star now. But I, I don't think that's quite the case also, I don't know that it bombs just because Deontay Wilder has, has done a few things recently to, to make a name for himself, but I, I'm going to have to do some more research on that. I mean, here, here's what I'll say. In the background research I've already done, it's just, it, with, with regards to the PBC, it's just very clear they plan on doing more pay-per-views, and they're very interested in seeing how everything performs on the Fox platform. Uh, now, this doesn't seem to fall in that category. This is likely on Showtime, uh, likely with, you know, Wilder in Brazil. But, you know, if they really, if it, because of the economics, if it really had to go to pay-per-view, then I, I'm just not that optimistic about it. I don't think many people will buy it. There'll be another, there'll be more research on this. There'll be more stuff coming later. All right, moving on. Um... Back to upcoming shows. I'm done a Q&A in a while. I'll probably do one of those soon as well. Um, next episode, I'm definitely going to look at the Spence Garcia fight, really what it means for both of their careers. That's yet, and that's another topic talked about at the beginning of the year. One final note in sort of this, this news and notes section. This podcast will, will also now be available on the Ring's website, ringtv.com. It'll soon be branded with The Ring. Shout out to Doug Fisher for believing in it. And really shout out to Dave Duenas here, who built Leave It In The Ring, you know, sort of built the platform along with, you know, obviously shout out to Gabriel Montoya as well. They, they still have a show together here. I think Dave Duenas especially just want to, want to say this is, this is great. And I'll still be available on, on this podcast feed, so I'm not leaving anywhere, just sort of being an addition to The Ring. Dave has provided a unique platform here that I think has an incredibly strong rotation of independent shows. And I think that's just really important in this day and age in the boxing universe. Um, there's just not 
most of the of the shoulder programming and shows you're seeing are just so obviously coming from one point of view that I think having the the independent voices, you know, where it's not branded by any one entertainment group, um, you know, in terms of broadcasting entities is, is extremely important. So, and, and that will continue with the ring, uh, the ring, you know, no one has ever given me any editorial notes in terms of opinions, uh, from the ring. So that, you know, that will exist there as well. Moving on. All right. On to the real meat here, the deep dive. So for this episode, I wanted to just take a look at how we got here. How we, as a boxing viewing public, got to this point, you know, really the past two years where we've seen incredibly changes in viewing habits and what a lot of this stuff means. I found especially that when I talk about this or get feedback from people, I realize I myself make a lot of assumptions that other people don't make. And that is probably because I worked not only in the small boxing industry for a while, but also in just the much larger TV industry at large. The two are intertwined in ways that most people don't connect or realize. And I've tried to do individual deep dives that look at smaller subjects, sort of like when you factor in like talking with people that I think, you know, the... It's you want to add context to this stuff as much as as possible, basically. I guess that's the bigger point here. And I think very too too few times have people looked at this. And I'm not just talking about social media. I'm talking about just just the boxing media in general or boxing public hardcore fandom in general. It's not that often where you look at this and, and try to talk about boxing in context of the greater industry at large. Even when you look at what's happening, like it's usually just a reaction like, oh, this guy's getting overpaid or, oh, this fight sucks. Oh, this fight's awesome. I want, I want this podcast and I want the people listening to this to live in nuance. Like my viewpoints here, they're informed by my experience and there are a lot of conclusions that I come to that are influenced by, you know, a few different things, including industry context, but this is really informed prediction. That's a lot of what I'm talking about here on this podcast and sort of analysis and then informed prediction. And, you know, I'm really trying to, to do that and then add context to what your viewing experience is, you know, just as a consumer. Um, so anyways, back to this sort of larger issue, it's like in the larger picture, but I look at the larger picture of boxing, you know, in the ring and and in the sport, boxing has a reputation that is not nuanced and there's just two guys trading blows and there's not like a lot of strategy to it. Like, and to me, that's just not the case. Boxing to me is body chess. It's high level problem solving with severe consequences and that it's both inside and outside the ring. And I try to bring that to this podcast, you know, I didn't even, like, I love it when you get into this type of news. Like, I didn't even cover this in the news notes section. Dillian White, he might sign with Top Rank. Like, I know the deal's not done yet, but, like, I'm not, it's not, I love talking about that kind of stuff, not because I'm rooting for one promoter or the other, but because I see promoters and networks 
playing chess with each other with these types of moves, both, you know, outside the ring. And, and I think it's happening just, maybe not just as much. I, I don't want to take too much away from the fighters, but you, I love noticing that part inside the ring. And then I love equating it with the stuff you're seeing outside the ring. So, you know, my argument here is that there's an incredibly dynamic marketplace and there's all sorts of variables that have led to where we are today. It wasn't just one thing. And it's like when you look at where we are today in the boxing world, I actually think it's akin to many major historical effects, like where there's a series of events. Many times the seeds were sown like in a way different environment than where a lot of the action actually happened. And I think you're seeing that in boxing today. I know there's some new listeners my goal here is to tie a lot of this stuff together in a really coherent way. So let me jump into it. I know I'm, I, that is me rambling probably too much, but let me jump into it. So brief history here. Most of you listening to the show know that the last few decades, HBO and Showtime have just sort of been in a league of their own in terms of televising boxing. Before that, the broadcast networks televised it with pretty solid success. The biggest events did great ratings and, you know, sort of even as weekend week out programming, the boxing, you know, the sport was healthy. HBO in particular changed that because, you know, in HBO there was this subscriber acquisition business and Showtime followed suit. HBO was tremendously committed to the sport financially. And even though it was the gold standard for many years, Showtime was also doing very well in boxing in terms of getting subscribers and putting on a very quality product. So what did this mean for the sport as a whole? Well, the main complaint and the main narrative from most people, especially older boxing fans, but I think boxing fans in general who care about the sport, is that there were major ramifications because there were a lot less eyeballs on the sport. And that's true. Less people watch the sport than watched it in previous decades. There's no doubt about that, and that is because it was on pay cable. So we'll come back to that later. But anyways, in general, let's just establish the sport still thrived in the 1980s and, you know, as it moved to pay cable and even still in the 90s as pay cable did great ratings and pay-per-view became a major force. But now let's go to the 2000s where the boxing setup is something along the lines of HBO being the gold standard and spending very significant money year over year on boxing. And at this point, we have HBO boxing, we have HBO pay-per-view boxing, you know, for the sport's biggest events, HBO World Championship Boxing for the really big fights that happen on the network, and then HBO Boxing After Dark, which is supposed to showcase smaller weight classes or younger fighters coming up, and it sort of morphed into a little bit of that, and then like a healthy dose of comeback fights for guys who lost on WCB. Showtime was still the clear number two in boxing in sort of the pay cable pecking order, but they did put on a very strong product, lots of great action fights. Here's where I want to pause, because I think this is where we need to start looking at other things that were happening in the landscape of televising sports, as well as what was happening in the entertainment industry at large. First of all, in the mid to late 2000s, the entertainment industry at large started to undergo some major changes. The old school philosophy was that Thursday night was the biggest night of TV. Like NBC just used to dominate Thursday nights with Seinfeld, Friends, you know, and I've said this before, but when I was working at Endeavor before it became WME, and now it's weirdly Endeavor again, like I was working there during this time period and like 
Getting TV packages, which means that you as an agency put together a package of writers, directors, and stars of a TV show and then get a license fee from it, which, you know, side note, was an incredibly lucrative business for the agencies. It, it's sort of like crucial in determining the power structure and what's going on in Hollywood at this time. Like, you could get paid basically if you did it well as an agency, you got somewhere between 1.5 and 6%, usually about 3% of the license fees, minus expenses, uh, in perpetuity for a successful show. So if you package any hit show, then you, you know you basically every rerun that ever goes, you make three cents on the dollar. Okay, I'm gonna end this side note, That's but just incredible business model for the agencies. Anyways, back to the world at large. You wanted to package shows together that got the best ratings on Thursday night, they brought you a ton of money. Then you wanted to have ads running on those shows for your films that were opening that weekend and getting promotion for them was huge. And I think even going back, let's go back actually to 1996. If you look at the top 10 rated shows in 1996, ER was averaging 34 million viewers, Seinfeld 33. Caroline in the City, a show I don't even remember existing, averaged 29 million viewers. Friends, 29. The Single Guy, another show I've never even heard of until I looked this, this up, 24 million. Home Improvement, 23 million. Mad About You, averaging almost 23 million. Roseanne, averaging 21 million. NYPD Blue, 20 million. Coach, 18 million. Those are the top 10. Those are weekly averages for season runs that have 22 episodes for the most part. But there were major changes coming that have reverberations that we still feel today as TV consumers. Ratings that would have gotten you canceled in the late 90s or early 2000s started to now be viewed as successes we started seeing a proliferation of smaller cable networks having meaningful like successes with smaller ratings. Sunday night also started to open up as the most important night on television. I mean, Desperate Housewives is sort of a good example of this on the network side. You know, but my former place of work, HBO, like that was key in opening up sort of everything for premium channels and just regular high-end cable channels. Another very important factor here, as the ratings and thus margins of profit for really big shows on the network started to decline, TV networks had to react in a few different ways. One of them was to go bigger, like spend more money on a show, get a huge ensemble cast, or pay actors who were previously movie stars really big salaries to do network shows. The other, and probably more important, was to go smaller and invest in non-scripted, aka reality TV that was much cheaper to make on the whole. And one thing, you know, majorly to note here, I worked at Endeavor during the writer strike in 2007-2008, and wow, did that have an effect on the way that you consume television. I mean, that's a whole other episode, probably not this podcast, like but, I mean, I actually think that single event, it changed the way you watch boxing. I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how much of an impact that strike had on it. I mean, 
you know, the the writer strike. It was arguably it's it's arguably the first step, or not maybe not the first step, but just as important of a step as any other that we're going to talk about here. That led to like why you're watching boxing, and really especially on two platforms, Fox and DAZN, but also even kind of ESPN. I mean, even that too. But what I will say is by this time in the late 2000s, the very top rated shows were still doing well. Like they're still, you know, in the 13 to 18 million range in terms of viewership over the course of the year. Not the numbers at all that they got a decade earlier. You know, basically you're looking at at like a little bit over half of, of the audience that you previously had. But more importantly, they were shows like American Idol and Dancing with the Stars rather than the scripted shows. And I'm not here to say the networks at this point were in major trouble because while viewership on the whole for the old school networks were declining, like they did own many of the cable channels that were providing more of that niche viewing. And so there were a lot of increases in viewership numbers there. But there were some warning signs. And why am I explaining all this? Well, again, to use that historical sort of analysis, like the fall of the Roman Empire started happening way before the Visigoths sacked Rome. Like in terms of network TV, we started to see this new environment affect sports in a major way. Sports always had strong viewership numbers, but usually played second fiddle at networks. I mean, you almost never saw, like one of the reasons David Levy in the past, you know, in the past two weeks, David Levy and Richard Plepler have both stepped down as heads of you know, Plepler is head of HBO, Levy is head of Turner. I think David Levy might be the only executive to become a CEO out of a sports group. I mean, my overall point is like, they just didn't take sports that seriously. Brian Curtis of The Ringer actually wrote an incredible oral history of how Fox got the NFL and what it meant for the network in the early 90s. And one of the really important takeaways from back then, CBS at the time was actually going to offer the NFL less money than its previous contract was scheduled to be. Sports just weren't viewed as crucial for networks at that point. And there was good reason. I mean, even though sports drew really good ratings, going back to that list I read off earlier, like a lot of other shows did a lot better. And you just go back to those ratings. Like, so... That started a change by the late 90s, certainly by the 2000s. Sports rights fees started to go up. They started to get more expensive by the late 2000s. Like at, th- at that point, you know, they were going up. Sports were going up and everything else was, was going down. It was just going down. It was declining, like major, major declines. Another important factor, ESPN took away Monday Night Football onto cable in 2006 You know, the NFL did make sure that NBC's Sunday night package was just as strong, but all that did is made the night, the the most viewing, the highest viewing night on television even stronger with Sunday night football. And then it kind of exacerbated things because it took what on Monday night, which would have been a traditionally strong night for network television, and now it turned it into this is going to be a really strong night for ESPN, and ESPN is going to win the ratings wars. And, and so it just sort of like spun everything out of control even worse. And the major point I'm trying to make here is that by 2010 with network television, 
you would completely redefine what a win was in terms of scripted comedies and dramas. What would have gotten you canceled five years earlier was now a success. And remember, that's another cycle of the same thing, because in 2005, a win, you know, was what would have gotten you canceled in 2000. And in 2000, a win was what would have gotten you canceled in 1995. Like the atrophy at this point is very real. And the cost of trying to make a comedy or a drama that is now, you know, even now going to be viewed as a potential win is now dramatically higher than it was. The repeat of that cycle just keeps happening every five years. Meanwhile, sports rights values are going up. But for the viewership you're getting, like, they're still great deals. By 2010, like, we're starting to see scary indicators. You can start to make a legit case by 2010 and certainly by 2015 that the NFL and other big events throughout the year are the only reason that, that are keeping the network truly in business. And in 2019, and more importantly, the upcoming 20s, like, the network's future may be totally dependent on the NFL, which is kind of crazy. The days of ER and American Idol even getting peak ratings, like those are going away. Sports as a whole, we're basically still doing similar ratings to what they've always done, or maybe slightly better. It's just now those ratings are considered amazing. It wasn't just the NFL either. Like bigger events in all sports are doing very well. Sports TV is, you know, it's just generally profitable. I mean, even the early, like the early teens, in, those are the salad days of ESPN. Like the network could almost do no wrong. Like I'm not going to cover that here. They've written books on it, but that was right before streaming really was a force. And, and right before you saw the decline of cable boxes ESPN was looking really good. Now, let's go back to boxing for a second. You know, boxing as a sport at this point, it was doing okay, but not great in the early teens. Boxing numbers were declining. You would see, here's what I will say. You would see the turnaround started to happen in the boxing demos. Like, that was actually dysfunctional. You know, that was... You take the dysfunctional sport of boxing, and that was starting to become real. But, you know, boxing, still the red light district, you know, sports in many ways. Like, at that point, we've come to a really key point at HBO where Floyd is going to, to go to Showtime. And I think, like, this is another sort of major event of note. Like, there were other issues at HBO. I want to be clear about that. Like the budget had slowly declined since the late nineties to the point where HBO was really vulnerable. Golden boys exclusive deal with HBO was more than a frustration among other promoters. And of course, Al Heyman and the way he made, he made matches at HBO was really frustrating to people, but Showtime saw an opportunity here. They grabbed the biggest fighter in the sport and Floyd Mayweather. And just for context, HBO never loses any piece of talent across the company. It just doesn't happen. I mean, the networks, their biggest stars, like, it may not be athletes. It may, it, it may be more writers and actors and directors than athletes. But in general, even with the athletes, 
you just almost ne- you never really left once you're in. But Showtime paid a lot of money. You know, I can say internally I was there at the sports department this time. Like, many people doubted that the deal would work out well. Like, truth be told, like, the margin of error was very thin for Showtime. The economics of it worked out where Floyd was probably going to have to, to – he was certainly going to have to average well over a million buys per fight through the duration of, of his six-fight contract. And, I mean, if the B-side was going to get paid really well, then it's he was going to have to average far greater than a million buys per fight. He's probably going to have to win at least five of those fights and never have a stinker. And remember, like, he would need to make sure that – you know, to ensure he win, there, there's like an inherent conflict because then the B side's not going to be as good. There wasn't really a major fight out there for him. Like there was Canelo, but remember at that point Canelo was a rising star, but no one knew he would do as well as he did on pay per view. And then Pacquiao was a pipe dream. Like remember, like that was kind of a key moment. It's easy to say that HBO's commitment to the sport was declining before this moment because it was. There are many reasons for that, but HBO was still spending a lot of money on the sport. There weren't major cutbacks yet. There was long-term atrophy for sure, but there weren't major cutbacks. But after after Floyd left, it sort of went from a slow and steady decline to a more rapid descent at HBO. And then let's go to another major point here. The PBC's experiment with the Waddell and Reed money. Certainly a major moment. I do want to emphasize here that inside the industry at this point, like, like, well, let's even within HBO, when this happened, no one was intimidated. I mean, it was eye opening that PBC got that much money. That's true. But most people thought no one thought it would be a blip on the radar, but most people thought the PBC was just not going to figure this out. And eventually they were going to lose a lot of money and just, you know, there'd be some poor saps in the finance world that was going to pay for this whole thing. Uh, but no one had faith, at least, and maybe that's HBO hubris. I don't know. But no one no one looked at this as, you know, it's like, okay, we're ready to go. This is a challenge to us. Let's do it. Again, I know it's very much the HBO take on it. Like, there's smaller promoters out there who lost fighters to the PBC who may feel really different. Like, they may feel like their world was about to crash down. But, like... In the grand scheme of things, I mean, it was really a pretty dumb way to spend that kind of money. And there just weren't many networks who were interested in PBC content. But, but, it did produce some eye-opening results when done correctly. In the aggregate, maybe not, but when done correctly, really big results. There were big numbers out there for, for... individual fight or individual night viewership on networks when they made the right fights. And that opened eyes. I mean, obviously it opened eyes at ESPN and Fox specifically to what boxing could do in terms of viewership when you put it on fights that people wanted to see. Credit to PBC and Al Heyman for doing that. And along the way, establishing the largest group of high-level fighters out there. Also remember that this, you know, this is a time by it started like at the beginning of it, the numbers that PBC were doing were like pretty good. I mean, by the end of the time, by the numbers that PBC was doing in the beginning, like 
network went from scoffing in that to being like, I'll take it. Give me that. That's great. Also, the demo part. Like, that was key because no one had paid attention to what had really happened probably since the early 2000s it started to change, but uh, certainly since, like, 2005, 2006, when it was still, you know, still probably old-school boxing. What you started to see, and I think HBO and Showtime surely saw this, boxing was key programming in terms of overall satisfaction for Hispanic and African-American subscribers. And I think especially the Hispanic audiences were starting to become a much larger percentage of the overall TV viewership or subscriber base, depending on how you want to look at it. And, you know, those are great. I think ESPN noticed that. They've traditionally been very sensitive to keeping a strong multicultural demo. Like they definitely noticed that this is something that hits, you know, the demographic that they're looking to hit. So now we're getting closer to the present day. And obviously the next big moment in this process is is top rank as the first company to go out and strike a major deal that is in a time buy with the network. They get a contract at ESPN, a real TV contract that's not a time buy. And I don't think there's really a conversation to be had about which event was more significant at the time. I mean, certainly inside the HBO offices, you know, it was the top rank ESPN deal. I mean, they're both significant events. It's really hard to see Top Rank getting the ESPN deal without the benefit of some of the data that the PBC provided at ESPN. But like I said, it's probably a bigger achievement to get a major TV deal like that. And at the time, and I think that's been proven wrong, it was really hard for a promotional company so the narrative was boxing isn't for advertisers. Advertisers don't like it. Again, yada, 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 red light sports district. But that this event sort of flipped that narrative. Inside HBO, no one was scared when PBC got their deal. Like I said, Quite the opposite. Many people assumed PBC would screw it up. Showtime would eventually be at a major disadvantage. But I definitely, I remember the meeting when it was announced internally that Top Rank was leaving HBO and taking their product ESPN. People were scared coming out of that meeting. They had every right to be. I mean, people, people probably started looking for jobs that day, basically. I know I did. Once that happened, and more significantly, once it became clear that Top Rank was going to be a success on ESPN, I mean, the writing was really on the wall for HBO. But that's just inside the HBO sort of take in terms of of looking at this. Like, at at that point, PBC was pretty much off HBO. HBO was dependent on Top Rank's product more than ever. And no matter how you looked at PBC's programming plan for their time by, I think, like, even the staunchest PBC supporters would say it, you have to look at it as something ranging from like an interesting experiment gone wrong. And this is in the totality, not in the, in the events that I mentioned earlier that did open a lot of people's eyes. Um, it's something between an interesting experiment gone wrong to just sort of like 
a failed attempt at monopolizing the sport? Maybe? I don't know. But in the process, they consolidated that big roster of talented fighters. They paid them really well. That's indisputable. And, you know, even though they, it seemed for a while like there might be a lot of defections, like they held the line and they ended up now with the Fox contract and they kept a great relationship with Showtime. I mean, I actually remember a conversation I had with a bunch of former colleagues at HBO and this is real smart people talking about it. I think everybody thought that Spike and Fox at the time had the best chances in succeeding in terms of what PBC was trying to do. I mean, I personally, I love what PBC has done for fighter purses. I mean, the complaints about this are crazy to me. I think it's easy to complain. I think here's the thing. It's easy to complain about Andre Berto making a million bucks in a cakewalk fight back in 2008 or 2009 or whatever. But that was an era when the total pie wasn't growing. It was shrinking. And there was very little creativity when it came to matchmaking. So at that point, you kind of have a right to, co- to complain when a fighter like that makes a million bucks, his opponent makes 50 grand, and he knocks his opponent out in the first round. Because that million bucks is coming out of the budget that your subscription is going to supporting, and that budget's not that huge. So a million bucks is a big... It's a, a really big percentage of that number. But that's not the case anymore. And then there's the part that no one anticipated. That's the rise of well-funded streaming services that sort of just scooped up a bunch of the inventory out there. And look, if you listen to this podcast, you know how I personally feel about streaming services. I'm not going to relitigate that, but I think they're the future. And there are things that you're not going to like about them. I mean, they have lots of money. They aren't going to share metrics. They do have a lot of data and a lot of metrics, though. But I think the bigger thing is that here's where things are going. And I truly believe that this part isn't up for discussion. The argument out there is that it's important for the future of boxing to be on platforms that have larger audiences. That is why ESPN and the Fox deals have been lauded. And that is correct. It is important to be on platforms that have larger audiences. But let's go back to where the TV industry is right now. Part of the reason that streaming services are so important to the future of boxing is because the next generation of viewers watches almost all their content exclusively on streaming services. They don't watch network TV. They're watching places like ESPN less and less, even though ESPN still does draw a great demo. Where we, like where we are right now has lots of causes, but one must remember that part of the reason boxing is on Fox and ESPN is because of the demo turnaround in the sport, but another major factor is because networks are dying. Fox is basically one step away from abandoning like scripted TV, period. They're moving to live entertainment in the biggest way possible, and much of that is because they're desperate. Like, to use a boxing analogy for TV shows, friends in ER ain't walking through that door. Boxing fans shouldn't be embarrassed about this either. More viewers is good for the sport. 
but don't dismiss why networks are turning to boxing. Yes, part of it is the demo turnaround, but part of that is like this is a dart throw by networks because they need to take calculated low cost risk. It's okay to admit that. And that's not me throwing shade at Fox. I mean, that that's look, that's how the ESPN deal started too. There's a reason it started out as a four-year deal and only then got ripped up to become a seven-year deal. And that's because in general, major sports, like maybe minus the NFL to a certain extent, the NBA, although you're seeing it this year in the NBA, even sports audiences are generally declining. To put a bow on it, the highest rated drama on NBC, and I think Total TV right now is This Is Us, and it got over 10 million viewers for the premiere. But if you look at the last run of episodes, it's going to average a lot closer to 8 million viewers per episode right now. When you look at the rating numbers it got as the top-rated show for TV in 2017 and 2018, and this is back when it was doing bigger numbers, it was getting like a 5.4 rating. Just for context, like Friends probably rarely, if ever, got below a 15 rating. Like maybe a season or two, it dipped on that for average, but, you know, that's kind of crazy. But let's even take a further look. Let's look at, let's not look at the best shows on television. Like what's an example of the, of a run of the mill show that's making it? NBC just picked up Brooklyn Nine-Nine after a nice run on Fox like, this is a show that's been around for five seasons before this year. It's new on NBC. And when it debuted on NBC earlier this year, it got a 1.2 rating and 3.6 million viewers, which was viewed as a success because it was up 71% from the season debut the previous year on Fox. These aren't great numbers. But these are numbers that probably get the show renewed if they sustain and while I don't want to compare apples to oranges, let's just take a look at this to further the point. Boxing on ESPN or Fox probably costs roughly the same amount as Brooklyn Nine-Nine does per episode. And look, no one's disputing. Brooklyn Nine-Nine will have a, a much longer shelf life. It's a show you can always watch. If it was on a streaming service, I mean... You can watch it. You can just bang out 10 episodes. Like, that's a great way to do it. But if you look at how much it costs, like, it probably costs somewhere in the 3 to $4 million range per episode to make. And that gives you 30 minutes of content. Now, for a very similar price tag, boxing would give you a live audience of, like, two and a half or three hours. Now, granted, boxing has its much less... There's, there are many fewer ways to monetize the evergreen nature of it because it's really not that valuable as evergreen content because it's valuable live. Like You want to see it live. But this is part of the reason you're watching boxing on Fox. If we were, going to go, if, if we were to go back to the early 2000s, it doesn't matter how good it would be for the sport to watch boxing on network TV. The networks just wouldn't give up the real estate. Their decline is part of this. And like I said, that's okay to admit. Because boxing as a whole isn't failing. And neither is NBC, CBS, ABC, or Fox. 
for those companies, their parent companies still have total eyeballs and a large chunk of them, like they're just dispersed more than they were. But the individual channels, like those networks, like they've declined to the point where boxing, WWE and other live sports now fit into their model as like for Fox, the potential pillar of their programming. I mean, you know, obviously it's going to be more football, but you know, it's the true pillar, but just live entertainment in general. And that brings us to streaming services. A major point of the reason everything is declining is because streaming services are huge business. Like this goes for everything. Some companies are taking a diversified approach because what they see, you know, they see the future and they really see that like it's happening right before their eyes. Some are going exclusive streaming. Some are adding streaming as a complimentary thing. But the major point for boxing fans out there is that very soon, probably before this round of TV contracts is up, and almost certainly by the next round of TV contracts, streaming will overtake even network TV as the biggest place to find audiences. It's not an if, it's a when. That's why when you've heard from me, that it's so important to be first and to be successful on streaming services for boxing. That's why you're hearing that. You've already seen it on ESPN+. Supposedly, there are 2.5 million subs now and growing very fast. It won't be long at all, probably sometime in 2019, maybe sometime in 2020, when they hit 5 million subscriptions or even more. And with that group of subs, one might be able to put on a big boxing event and draw just as big, if not a bigger audience than ESPN or even Fox currently averages on their linear platform. Trust me, this is coming. Maybe it's 2021 instead of 2020, but it's coming. And whether or not zone becomes successful with boxing, and I think they have a very good chance if Canelo fights Jacobs and then if, there's, if Canelo fights Triple G later this year, like that's going to be another place where pretty soon they're going to have similar audience numbers to Showtime for the same level of fights. And yeah, maybe it's 2020 rather than 2019, but DAZN is a worldwide company in many countries. Like it, it's, it's a majorly successful company and, and I think it will succeed with or without boxing as, as, as sort of one of the pillars of their programming. Whether it's DAZN or another streaming service, maybe Showtime for that matter, they stream, maybe both. Like, this is where it's headed. And I don't wish failure on any of these deals. I really hope the PBC on Fox succeeds. I know I've been critical of it, but I hope it succeeds. And while it is certainly the best place to get the biggest numbers right now, I'm telling you that this is a short-term thing. It's not a long-term thing. Even if I'm off by a couple years in time, it is a matter of when, not if. Fox will eventually have to figure out how to make the transition to streaming. Like, they've already kind of started, but they're not really doing it in a major way. The main issue that they'll face is that one of the demos they really care about, younger multicultural men, just won't profile as the viewer that they'll be picking up if they don't move to this. Many of you out there think it's crazy that a company like DAZN or ESPN Plus is doing what they're doing, spending all this kind of money. But it's actually extremely rational behavior. 
In fact, ESPN Plus may have set the template for how to get subscribers to sign up. And if DAZN hits seven or 800,000 subs after the Canelo fight in May, like that's starting to look like a sustainable model. You make the Triple G fight in the fall, and all of a sudden you're going to be well over a million subs, maybe even close to 1.5 million. I think the people inside boxing take too provincial of a view on this, and it's important to take a step back and see the forest through the trees. Yes, it's important for the sport to reach more viewers, but it's important to do that both now and in the future. People complain all the time, too, that boxing will just be used in the early stages of all this, you know, as places build their streaming sub-bases, and then boxing just sort of gets discarded and it's on to better things. But you never think about the alternative. The alternative is really scary. It's that these streaming services ignore boxing, and then when eventually all this stuff happens, they just don't care about the sport at all. And at that point, we're back to Friday Night Fights level stuff as our main boxing fix. We're back to fighters not getting paid, stories like Andrew Cancio never happening, not thanking Al Heyman, not asking Bob Aaron to make a big fight just because the money's not going to be there. That's some dystopian shit for me. For all the network divides, and it's easy to complain about that stuff. It's a dynamic set of events that brought us to where we are now. I mean, I'm definitely telling you I lived it. Like, that writer's strike is, is one of the main reasons you're seeing boxing on Fox right now. You can even connect it to, to why you're seeing, basically, you can connect it to why you're seeing boxing on DAZN as well. I mean, a lot of those streaming services left... They, they went to acquire all this, all this evergreen programming that was on, you know, previously on networks. I mean, like I said, the, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine example is kind of crazy. Like a good, a really good boxing fight on network TV should beat that. And five or six years ago, there was almost no hope on the horizon for boxing. Like for increasing the money in the sport. There was no chance there would be over 100 million spent per year in the sport. And we're way past that now. It's going to be closer to 400 million spent on the sport, not counting pay per view. Now the focus is going to have to be how to make a good, consistent, competitive project, you know, product on TV. The upcoming battle for supremacy is going to benefit you, the viewer, greatly. Yes, there's going to be network divides. But you're going to get a lot more fights as a consumer. And I think the competition to keep viewers is going to be strong enough that you're going to get a lot of good fights too. You're going to get way better in-house matchmaking. You're still going to get opportunities for fighters to prove themselves. It's easily the most fascinating time to cover the business of the sport. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but I don't think I, I, I don't think I am. I, th- I think when you look at where this could have been, you look at where it is now, yes, there's issues. But these ventures need to produce good numbers to be successful. And the only way to do that is put on good fights. There's just too much competition out there. All right. 
let's go to the preview section. We actually have some really good stuff coming up in the next two weeks. Let's start with Friday, March 8th. And I actually previewed this last time. I don't know if something got moved or whatever, but Daniel Dubois fighting Razan Kojinu with the fight I thought was happening two weeks ago, Anthony Yard versus Travis Reeves on ESPN+. Um, I still really don't care about this fight that much, and I'll leave it at that. DeZone also has a card from Italy that I care even less about. On to the good stuff. On Saturday, March 9th from Carson, California. On Fox, Sean Porter fights your Dennis Ugas for Porter's WBC welterweight title. Also on the card, Abel Ramos versus Francisco Santana and F.A. Ajagba versus Amir Mansour. This is the first really great main event on paper that PBC is putting on Fox. It's the one fight on the schedule that Fox announced a few months ago that was like consensus, high-quality matchup for their TV deal. Everybody circled it on their calendar. I think it's really smart the way they've done this where the best high prof- high profile matchup is done a week before the pay-per-view you know i've talked about that sort of at length in criticizing hbo strategy for canelo triple g rematch um i also think this should counteract the terrible show fox put on during the nba all-star weekend ordeal i'm really hoping the ratings they get from this help bring up the average over 2 million viewers per show for all their shows so far. Odds for these fights are as follows. Porter is about a 4-1 to favorite against Ugas, which, look, I'll admit I'm, I'm biased here. I love Sean Porter. I think all his fights are fun to watch. I mean, I know he's not a true artist in the ring like others are, but he brings it like few others do. You know, I hope that means that this fight is going to be TV-friendly. I'm really excited about it. Santana is like a 2-1 to favorite over Ramos. Like, at least that one's really well matched. And Ajagba is like 15 or 16-1 to against Mansoor. Uh, the only really bad thing I have to say about this card is something overall I've talked about with Fox before with the eight-round fights. And I think you can be critical of ESPN for that, too. Um, look, I mean, at least we're going to see a heavyweight prospect get tested. But I don't like watching eight-round fights for these types of shows. So... Also on Saturday, March 9th, from Verona, New York, DeZone Dimitri Bivol takes on Joe Smith for Bivol's WBA light heavyweight title. Mo Hooker fights Mikel Lespierre for Hooker's WBO junior welterweight title. I'm also interested in Callum Johnson versus Shawnee Monahan at light heavyweight. Like This card is likely to be TV-friendly. It's probably the first matchroom card in the United States where I can honestly say... Going in on paper, we're looking at what's probably going to be fun, quality TV to consumers. It's not going to be getting new subs. I mean, this is like a lower-level HBO Boxing After Dark or Showtime World Championship Boxing card. Um, it's not like the highest-level type of thing. But I'm excited. I mean, Bivol's like somewhere between 17 and 25 to 1 is a favorite. He definitely should win. But Joe Smith is usually pretty fun. And I think had he been more active... The odds would be closer. Uh, Hooker is a massive fave over Lespierre, and I think that's like 50 to 1, maybe down to 35 to 1, something like that. Hooker does make fun fights, though. And then Johnson is an 8 to 1 favorite over Monaghan, but Monaghan has several pathways to victory here, and that could be an incredibly entertaining TV fight. On Friday, March 15th, from Philly, on zone, Tevin Farmer fights Jono Carroll for Farmer's IBF junior lightweight title. Katie Taylor fights Rose Volante in a women's lightweight unification fight, and then Gay Rosado takes on Maciej Suleski at middleweight. 
Uh, Hank Lundy fights Avery Sparrow at lightweight. Odds are as follows. Farmer like a 9 or 10 to 1 favorite. Taylor 25 to 1 or higher. Suleski like 8 to 1. And that Lundy-Sparrow fight is as close to as Pickham as it gets. Um, there's the zone starting to put on better quality TV. Like this is also in that category. Um, not super competitive matchups on paper going in. I will give them credit for doing it on Friday night instead of Saturday night. So they're not going against a bigger event and they're going to give the results of their fights a chance to make it out there in the news cycle. Good on them for that. They're also not taking away pay-per-view buys. Um, Good on them for that. As far as individual matchups go, it has been nice watching Tim Farmer. Um, They better have a real strategy with him or else he's just going to be a good fighter that they use for a period of time and then he leaves. I think he has one fight left on his contract. So let's see him in a big fight after this. Joan O'Carroll isn't exactly the most inspiring opponent, but I am fairly excited to see this one. Uh, Suleski Rosado, that fight, I know it's a little bit longer on it can be really good. There's a lot of toughness there going on with those two guys. That could be a really good fight on paper. Um, Hank Lenny in a tough matchup for, you know, as well. Great. All right. On to the big one. Saturday, March 16th on Fox pay-per-view. Errol Spence fights Mikey Garcia for Spence's IBF welterweight title. Undercards are David Benavidez fighting Jaleon Love at super middleweight. Luis Neri versus McJoe Arroyo at bantamweight. And Chris Ariola versus Jean-Pierre Augustine at heavyweight. Quick odds. Ariola is like a 7-1 favorite. Neri is like 17 or somewhere between 17 and 30-1 favorite. And then Benavidez is a 9 or 10-1 favorite. None of those fights are that exciting. The main event is awesome. Spence is a 4 or 5-1 to one favorite right now over Mikey Garcia. I have a lot to say about this fight. And, you know, I'm sure I'm just going to go out and do my deep dive on it next week. I think it is meaningful both in both career narratives for both fighters. I do think Errol Spence is going to win by knockout. I do think Mikey Garcia has at least one pathway to victory, probably more. And, and I'll tell you what, I would love to make a pay-per-view prediction. There's just so many factors. I've talked about this before. It's tough to make that prediction for me this far out. I have been talking about though. I think it will exceed expectations. I think it will exceed expectations. While I was at the DAZN event, made another bet with, uh, the reporter that my audience seems to have very, you know, strong opinions about and most of them not positive about with Mike Coppinger. Um, but that was a fun little bet we made anyways. So have fun with that guys. Um, 250,000 buys, I think is where we set the over under I'm taking under he's taking over. So let's see how that goes. I will start by saying though, like, I don't think anyone besides Mikey Garcia called for this fight. My pick with no context, I'd say Spence by KO. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface, though. Like, this is going to have a major effect on both each fighter, the way their brand is perceived. I think for Mikey Garcia, most people have categorized this as a no-lose situation. I actually think there's a lot to lose. He got hit a lot when he stepped up to 140 against Lipinets, And Spence is a really big welterweight who can cause serious damage here. 
So I actually think there's there's some serious damage that that literally could come to Mikey's brand right here. If he gets wiped out quickly or if he suffers a lot of physical damage, that can affect the rest of his career. A bad loss would also seriously affect if the Lomachenko fight ever could get made or not. I mean, that's obviously that's one of many hurdles for that fight. Um, but that fight could be pay-per-view if Mikey does well. And I think it could have been pay-per-view before Mikey did, even took this fight. So tough to say on that. I mean, I think he could take a lot of damage. I think he could he could potentially put that fight, which I think everybody would love to see in jeopardy. Like, it might never happen. Um, look, I think the other thing, Mikey Garcia is daring to be great. And I love that. I do love that. I will also say when you go back to in the ring, Garcia has a very high boxing IQ. He's got an incredible skill level. Can he counteract Spence's jab? I mean, that's that's one of it's one of the big questions here. But it is clear he has a higher boxing IQ and skill level than Spence. How much is is up for debate? It might not be that much. Spence has a really high boxing IQ and skill level too. Even some of the other stuff I've talked about. Spence's resume, comparing it to Crawford, comparing it to Thurman, to Porter, even to Pacquiao. There's just a lot going on here. I'm going to talk about it a lot more next episode. That's I, That's got to be my deep dive next episode. I love the fact that Mikey's daring to be great. I'll say it again. All right. I also think it's interesting that this fight went to Fox instead of Showtime. I think it's you know, it's clear this is Fox's first pay per view, and and it's going to be a learning experience. Um, but I also think they're going to put whatever resources they need to to make it a success. Anyways, more on that next episode. Finally, on Sunday, March 17th, from New York, on ESPN+, Plus, Michael Conlon fights Ruben Garcia Hernandez at featherweight. Also on the card, Louis Colazzo fights Samuel Vargas. This is really one where I think it's just more about having Mikey Conlon fight on St. Patrick's Day in New York and developing him as a live attraction. He is a 100-to-1 favorite. And I think the only way you can really watch that fight is if you're drunk. So, in Colazzo Vargas, that's basically a pickup fight. It should be really good. I have a lot of, you know, I, I, I have high hopes for that one. Anyways, I'm almost at an hour 15. I've rambled on way too long. I will try to make these shorter, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Let me know. All right. Anyways, this two-week stretch of boxing is going to be great. Enjoy it. I will come back and talk about Errol Spence and Mikey Garcia and what that fight means to their careers, to their brands, to Showtime, to Fox, to the PBC in general. Until then, enjoy the fights. Did you get what you was looking for?